and I'm recording in OBS. Okay, you got both your recordings going? I have both recordings going, yes. Elena, how many recordings do you have going? I got zero, I'm pretty sure. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys Podcast, where the name is aspirational, and where we've gone through some distinct shifts in recent months. Judging by the volume of our public content, we're now a Twitch streaming outfit, twitch.tv slash nontoxicfanboys. Meanwhile, back here on the podcast, we've become, of all things, a fugitive fancast. Life is a rich tapestry and leads you in unforeseen directions. Following our examinations of the 2020 Quibi television-ish series and the 1993 feature film, we are closing our journey through the fugitive cinematic universe with the 1998 movie U.S. Marshals. This was decided by our dear patrons at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys, so this episode is all for you. With me, as ever, is my brother, Scott. Scott, are you excited to return to the rich world of the FCU? You know, they sell a lot of cheap knockoff t-shirts with the slogan, Life is what happens when you're making other plans. (laughs) Remember back when we relaunched the podcast in January, we had plans. We had a roadmap. When we released our relaunch episode, we outlined, like, the next 35 episodes that we planned to do as soon as we were done with the Oscar season score shows. And so far, we've done exactly zero of those 35 episodes. So, you know, fine. Let's be a fugitive fan cast for a little while. Life is also a highway. So let's ride it. <laughs> and of course, we could not possibly discuss this movie without Alana Kelly, whom I am thrilled to bring in right now. Elena, you said The Fugitive Part 1 is your favorite movie. Is U.S. Marshals your second favorite, or does it stand fully alongside the first? Spoilers, it is not my second favorite. I had been avoiding it, and it turns out I was right, but we'll get into that. We talked in the original Fugitive show about how Tommy Lee Jones was sort of the breakout standout star from that first movie. Even though it was, you know, originally conceived as a Harrison Ford vehicle. Tommy Lee Jones was the one that got all the acclaim from that movie. And so, why not take the surprise breakout star of the first movie and try to build more off of him? Because, I mean, they're not exactly going to make a sequel about Richard Kimball returns to his medical practice. Mm -hmm. That did occur to me. Probably easier to get Tommy Lee Jones back than Harrison Ford. And I also think... Like, I don't know him, of course, but I kind of feel Tommy Lee Jones enjoyed the character of Gerard. So I think on paper, it probably seemed like a cute idea, especially since they got almost all of the U.S. Marshals team to return. As much of that secondary cast as possible. Yeah, for sure. Such as our dear, dear old Joey Pants. Yeah, a lot of these guys were like not particularly known and have not been known since. Like, they're the fugitive guys. A lot of those Marshals. Well, character actor is an eminently admirable occupation. Uh, They're actors who work, as we say. For sure. So, let's give a little context, because no one's seen this movie or remembers it. (laughs) In lieu of Dr. Richard Kimball, who was framed for the murder of his wife, now and forever, U.S. Marshals is the story of primarily the U.S. Marshals this time, and Wesley Snipes' character, who is introduced in a way that seems somewhat arbitrary and somewhat mystifying, I think, and gets involved in this deep web of national security and international intrigue. He's been framed for double murder, he went into hiding, he's already a fugitive, and then he becomes a worse fugitive, and then he goes on the run again, and I think that the story and the plot beats reflect what a lot of this movie reflects, which is the tendency among sequels to try to escalate every aspect of the first movie. 
we have to have a conspiracy of wider scope and greater import. We have to have more and flashier action sequences. That's one of the things that making the fugitive character a trained special agent or whatever nefarious government agency he actually worked for is that the character can do more elaborate action scenes. And you can have all of these gadgets and gizmos that he uses to, like, hack into the security cameras at the Chinese consulate. You know, he can do all of this intrigue because his character is already someone who would have that technology, someone who would have that training. And so you can escalate in that way. And some of these escalations just seem arbitrary. Elena, what do you think about, like, the ways that we're, like, changing the formula and some of the ways in which we're not changing the formula? I think in addition to what you were saying about the tendency of sequels to try to raise stakes on something that worked before, they definitely tried to raise too many stakes at once. So the suspension of disbelief starts to fail because there's too much going on. And I also feel like there was maybe some kind of drafting war about what the conflicts were going to be because there's two major ones and they fight with each other. Like they fight for our attention. It becomes a little bit difficult to follow. It's just not as tightly scripted as the first one and it shows. And there's also some like self-indulgence perhaps on the part of the director and the writer to like, as you say, display these sort of over the top action beats. And also, in addition to them being kind of over the top, they also called back to action beats from the original in like a weird way, like where they showed up in the plot and how they were timed and and a little bit even how they were set up really called me back to the original Fugitive. But the tension wasn't there yet. Like we didn't know Mark, you know, Wesley Snipes' character. We didn't know him well enough yet. We weren't sure of his actual complicity in the crime that is shown at the beginning, the cold open crime. Like, we have no idea what the hell is going on yet. So, like, it's just they tried to raise the stakes, but they didn't do it in the right order. So by the time we're watching these people in peril, the tension is not there. Well, one thing they do in this movie is the thing that we said that it was good that they didn't do in the first one, which is that they try to maintain the mystery of did Wesley Snipes do it or not? Is he actually the bad guy or is he not the bad guy? Except we sort of assume he's not, because that's how these stories are structured. We sort of assume there has to be more to it than that, because there's going to be, like, twists and surprises and whatnot. And also, they maintain that mystery until about the middle of the movie, where they, like, stop the entire movie so he can call his girlfriend and explain to the audience in detail exactly what happened and how he's not guilty. Yes. I think that might be an artifact of reshoots and rescripting. Like, I think they maybe wanted to... They wanted to maintain the mystery of if he did it or not, and then at some point in post-production, they're like, shit, this really doesn't work. Let's insert a bit where we explain that he didn't do it. Like, for real, that probably occurred. (laughs) I think there might have been drafts where he actually was guilty, too. Like, completely guilty. Mm -hmm. Really? You think they changed it that much? From what I've read, which, you know, I read a thing on the internet, but I did read one note that said that there was a version with a lot more ambiguity and maybe not total complicity, but some more complicity in the whole plot to sell secrets to China, which is a very late 90s anxiety and an extremely Mm. problematic one. Really? Because that sounds like something that would come out of like a 2021 movie. Well, that too. Are are they making another, another Red Dawn? He's making a secret backroom deal with Huawei. Damn. (laughs) Yeah, but I believe there was a version where Wesley Snipes' character was actually complicit in the whole plot to sell information to China, and if not that he killed the agents that he's accused of killing in cold blood, then he was a lot dirtier than the final film presents him as being. It might have even gotten to, like, test screenings before it was decided, no, we want Tommy Lee Jones chasing an innocent man. It's just so muddled. It's just not focused, which is unfortunate because they had resources. Like, The Fugitive was so successful. Like, you could tell the film was well-financed. Like, the effects work is decent. There's some green screen airplane shit that is not so awesome, but a lot of it looks just fine. But yeah, they just couldn't agree on what to emphasize and what would be an interesting plot and where the tension should come from. So it's just, it's a mess. Yeah, I agree. We can talk about the merits of some of the more technical aspects, but 
the plot, I think, is really, really where this movie falls down. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like the whole conspiracy is just, it's not explained very well. It's not explained very clearly. You don't really have much of an idea what's going on until very late in the movie, which on the one hand is like kind of how you build a mystery intrigue plot is you don't really know what's going on until late in the movie. But for an action thriller like this, you kind of need to know what's going on in order to follow what's going on in the action beats, you know? Like, I don't want to spend this whole episode complaining that this movie isn't the previous movie, but one of the things that we talked about quite a bit was the tightness of the plot, the consistency of the characterization, and the orderly way that the plot progressed from beat to beat to get us deeper into the conspiracy in a way that made sense. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I don't think U.S. Marshals is interested in at all. It's a movie with different priorities. It's much more of a standard action thriller. One thing we talked about with the first movie was how it was so intelligent. Everything was very intelligently done. Yes. Including leading the audience through the plot from beat to beat to beat, so the audience always understands what each character is trying to do and why they're trying to do it and what each character knows and what they don't know. The audience knows all that so they can follow what everyone's doing and also follow all of the actions around them. In this movie, they don't keep the audience informed like that. In an effort to maintain the mystery, they just sort of leave the audience in the dark, so it's hard to follow what each character is trying to do. Because you don't know their motivation, because you're still trying to maintain the mystery of are they the good guy or the bad guy. Also, you can't lead the audience if you yourself don't know where you're going. (laughs) To do like a concrete contrast, so Robert Downey Jr. shows up as a guest star in this project, and his role is to represent the feds. He allegedly knew the two men who die in the cold open, and he's all mad, and he's there to assist Gerard and report back to whichever nefarious agency it is, the NSA or whatever. So he's there, and they have this discussion about Robert Downey Jr.'s sidearm, and Gerard thinks that it's shit, and he should get a new one, etc. Yeah. And then that becomes a plot point later. And in a delicate, well-written film, that could come up again and we would all slot it into place. But this film chooses to do this incredibly hokey, black and white filtered actual replay of the scene to make sure that we, the audience, understand the significance of the sidearm showing up again. It's just so ham-fisted and it just shows no trust between the filmmakers and the audience. And it's just like, it makes it a joke instead of it being like this amazing mystery reveal that makes us all feel good like an agatha christie moment or an alfred hitchcock moment it's just hokey which is too bad because like that could have been an interesting thing like the reveal of what's going on with the rdj character was the one part that i like sat up and took notice in and it doesn't show up until over an hour into the film (laughs) so i'm sitting there not giving a shit and then finally they give me something but then they spoil it by not trusting me to follow without this nonsense on the other hand since it's so muddled, maybe I did need a huge clue. But yeah, I did not enjoy that the way that I could have been if it had been handled better. The bit with RDJ's gun, I don't know if the plot importance of that would have drifted by me if they hadn't had the ham-fisted black-and-white flashback, but my reaction to that initial scene was just the standard disgust that I've come to feel at any display of that sort of masculinity. That's one of the things that I mean when I say that this is more of a standard action thriller. Like, you have to have the main character who is a big, strong, macho man, and, you know, this skinny, smooth-faced punk gets inserted into his world, and he has to take out his gun and say, Oh, this is a sissy gun! What are you, a pussy? Fuck you! Yeah, but that's not inconsistent with his characterization in the first one. That whole scene after he shoots Copeland is kind of the same kind of thing. That was a comparison that did occur to me. I think, again, the way they handle Gerard's character here is ham-fisted. I think that's the touchstone of the evening. Well, I think there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's ham-fisted, and I kind of want to go into more detail on that later. Sure. I don't know, like... Scott brought up the Copeland shooting in the first film where the rookie 
gets taken hostage by their target and Gerard needs to shoot the target basically because the rookie had made a mistake and then they're processing it outside and Gerard doesn't humiliate his newbie. He just lets him know like how it has to be. Like it's a teaching moment. There's like some light sympathy there. Like I don't see the hyper-masculine posturing that I see when we have RDJ's character. And part of it is because RDJ's character is a dick and newbie guy is not a dick. But like Gerard in the first film is very secure. He's super secure. He's an expert. He knows what he's doing. He has no self-doubt. The doubt that he feels as the mystery is unfolding is about what's happening. It's not about like he is assured and how he's processing the information and the choices that he makes. But his response to RDJ is super insecure. So to me, it is in conflict with the characterization in the first film. I don't know. I see that scene after the Copeland shooting a lot differently, I think. Because to me, it comes off more like, you know, so hey, it's your first shooting, Rook. Buck up. This is the job. Get over it. And then that whole bit where he like leans right into his ear and whispers, I don't negotiate. I just kill people because I'm a big, tough man. He doesn't say that part though, Scott. He doesn't. I don't think the scene around that line in the first movie gives it quite the connotation that so many of his scenes in this movie do. I think he's certainly presented as, Alana, like you say, resolute, very secure, very confident, but he does allow the rookie a moment to process. He doesn't just completely ignore him afterward. He is resolute, but not unsympathetic. He puts his coat over him. Exactly. There's that small gesture even while he's not going to allow larger gestures. Yeah, he has that moment, but he's also, like, disdainful of the idea that he would resolve a situation in some way other than shooting the suspect. Well, that's... Which I think comes off as maybe not as explicit as calling the other guy a sissy, but it does come off to me as, like, bullshit macho posturing. Like, I'm not going to let him put a gun to your head and not shoot him for it kind of man do you think i am interesting you definitely have a point i think that reflects more of the movie's relationship to police and marshals and you know the entire quote-unquote justice system in a way that is again not unproblematic in the fugitive because i mean god it's the water we swim in in this culture but is something that is done in a way that's much worse in this movie. Is it actually worse in this movie? The posturing, I think, is turned up to 11 at times. Well, there's a lot in this movie that's turned up to 11. Any, like, easy, cheap, shortcut way of writing the scene or structuring the plot is turned up to 11. They take, like, every opportunity for the cheap stunt or the cheap one-liner or the cheap shock. They do that a lot in this movie. Like, he doesn't just find the pen gun on the plane. He takes three steps past it and then stops and turns back to find it. What are you going to do about the fugitive? Catch him. They always go for that kind of cheap one-liner rather than, like, any sort of intelligent dialogue. They did do that several times. And they're not even good one-liners. No. Well, there's one line that was obviously inserted to put in the trailers where Tommy Lee Jones kind of looks off in the distance and says, we have ourselves a fugitive. Yeah. Right? Like, do we, do you think? Can I just say, I was so disappointed that this sheriff was also incompetent and bumbling and completely out of his depth. And I understand that's just the kind of movie this is. They're always going to go for that, like I say, the cheap bit and move on. And so now knowing the context of the rest of the film, I sort of expect that. But at the time, I hadn't seen the movie yet. I really thought it would have been so much better if that sheriff had, like, basically given a very similar speech to what Tommy Lee Jones did in the first movie. And Tommy Lee Jones is just sitting off to the side like, oh, oh, he, he, he's got a good handle on this. Huh. That would have been interesting, yeah, if he'd given the whole monologue from the first movie and the only addition that Gerard has is like, well, I would make it 20 miles instead of 15, but, you know, you're doing all right. Right, instead of the super awkward retread of the scene in the previous film, like, it was so similar. 
But yeah, it's just like Tommy Lee Jones's natural comedic timing, just like it didn't have the substance to bounce off of. He just seems tired and snarky. And like, he's tired and snarky in the first one too, but in like, there's a different mood there. It's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what is different about it. He's more ego-driven instead of mission-driven. Actually, maybe that's it. The first film, he's like really mission-driven. And then this one, he's very ego-driven and it bothers me. Yeah, I think that kind of reflects the idea that U.S. Marshals has that because Tommy Lee Jones was the breakout star of The Fugitive and because his character was so well-liked in that movie, that by the time we get to this movie, in-universe, he's like some celebrity U.S. Marshal. His reputation precedes him when they begin the manhunt. But they're really inconsistent about that, too, because, like, his reputation precedes him such that the feds aren't even going to take over the investigation from him. But, like, three scenes later, his boss is threatening to fire him? That was so awkward. Like, is there any reason the boss character is in this movie other than just to have these scenes of drama? And just to put a woman on screen, because there's only one other woman character, so... Yeah, but all she does is these, like, really stereotypical scenes of, like, I can't properly enunciate the tilde exclamation point at the end of the word drama, you know? You're in trouble, you need to go do this, or, you know, if you don't catch this guy, I'm gonna fire you. What is the point of those scenes? It's supposed to be stakes raising, but it's just not there, because at the time that she chews him out, he didn't actually fuck up yet. (laughs) <laughs> like, if he was going to be chewed out by his boss, it should have been around the time that Joey Pants was mad at him for approaching the mission wrong and coming at it with vengeance instead of professionalism. But then that would be a weird time to introduce the boss character. So they really just fucked themselves with the boss character. I like the idea of him having, like, a implacable female boss. That's always nice to see, especially with somebody like Gerard. But yeah, they didn't use it right. And the timing of it was wrong. Like I was just saying, like he doesn't fuck up until the end, but the stakes were already up there. So they can't go any higher because they were already raised. Like it's just misjudged. Yeah, they're trying to raise the stakes, but they're doing it in like the cheapest, most empty way. Uh That's what a lot of this movie is. Cheap and empty. And I don't mean that like they didn't spend money on it. I just mean that, like I said earlier, they go for the cheap bit all the time. The cheap one-liner or the cheap stunt or the cheap shock moment or whatever. The cheap raising the stakes that feels really empty and doesn't really lead to anything. They do that a lot in this movie. And it's really a stark contrast to, like we said before, how tightly plotted and intelligently plotted the first one was. Yeah, it's really good mystery, and this one doesn't have a good mystery. No, no, exactly. I mean, the way that you raise stakes in a movie like this is you present believable threats and believable complications for characters we care about. But we have to care about them first. Yeah, they were really trying to trade on Gerard's popularity in the previous film, and they didn't reestablish it. They just jumped right in with it. Which, of course, I'm sure almost all of the audience had seen The Fugitive. That was the point. But like, just from like a storytelling perspective, that was a lazy call. Yeah, and his establishment from the first movie got them most of the way in that respect. But I'm mostly thinking of Wesley Snipes' character, whom we're not given a whole lot of reasons, or at least I think a whole lot of good reasons, to care about for a lot of the movie. And a lot of that is, Scott, like you're saying, kind of cheap. You know, he has the sympathetic girlfriend who is his softer side. It's very stereotypical. Yeah. She did what she could with the role. Shout out to that actress. I enjoyed her performance. But yeah, like it was real screenwriting 101 that she was there and the way she was used. Absolutely. And we can talk about the acting a little because the actors are doing everything they can here. Tommy Lee Jones is absolutely doing everything he can. Wesley Snipes, I don't think Wesley Snipes is going to be anyone's, you know, top-notch, top-caliber actor, but he's fine. He's doing fine. Everyone's doing what they can. The supporting cast, the character actors we mentioned in the U.S. Marshals group. Tommy Lee Jones, I think, has some very detailed acting moments in here that show the effort he's putting in. The one that really stands out to me is after Newman dies. He's in his office, and his boss comes in, 
and he has the one moment where you can see in his eyes and you can see around his mouth that he's about to feel his feelings and he's starting to feel his feelings. And then one of the local cops appears in the background and waves an evidence bag or something in the background and you see him steal himself and go right back into it. As ham-fisted as the writing is for his character, Tommy Lee Jones is investing some subtlety in that moment. And there are some bits like that, but they're just, they can't overcome the writing. No. And I agree. That was a really nicely judged moment from Tommy Lee Jones. Like, I felt it. And I do think if they were going to kill anyone on, on the team, I think dramatically it was good that it was <laughs> good. Dramatically, it's very effective that it was Newman because we, you know, he's one of the kids. As, like in the first one, Gerard calls the team his kids all the time, which is adorable. But yeah, like it was there, like the gravitas was there. Like I bought into him grieving this member of his team. And I do think that was one of the stronger story moments. Well, compare that to the scene before that when they arrive at the hospital and they say that he died en route and Tommy Lee Jones just sort of stands there outside the ambulance and looks up to the sky and throws his arms out like, aw, shucks. Yeah. Yeah, I was waiting for him to scream, why? Yeah. I think Wesley Snipes actually did a lot with what he was given. He was kind of given a mess, but I bought it. And I enjoyed his performance. I enjoyed his physicality. I was reading some reviews that were making fun of awkwardness between Snipes and whoever his stunt double was, that it wasn't smooth. But I actually didn't notice problems with that. I thought it was well done. The only clunkiness I noticed with stunt doubles was Tommy Lee Jones during the fight in the granary, I think, at the end of the movie. Yeah. There's a lot of weird shit there. That whole piece was such a fucking weird set of choices but we can we can get into that later <laughs> i know i keep bringing up stuff like this but there's this knockdown drag out fight between trained secret agent wesley snipes and like 68 year old tommy lee jones why is this a competition and how does tommy lee jones come out on top same thing with wesley snipes fighting with rdj Actually, I commented this in the messenger that I had open with Glenn while I was fucking watching it last night. The live tweeting. Oh yeah, that is a whole aspect of this that I am very sad we can't communicate to the listeners that you were basically live blogging your pain as you were watching the film. But I was seeing Wesley Snipes' stacked like IHOP and like these other two men would not be able to effectively grapple with him. Like, I don't buy it. It was distracting. Well, Robert Downey Jr., at least in the story, is, like, also a secret agent. So, theoretically, he would have the same sort of training and abilities. Theoretically, yeah. When do these guys go to the gym? <laughs> Other bits from the actors. The team is good. They're doing what they can. The dialogue's just fucking not as strong. Like, I noticed, especially in the mausoleum scene, where they, like, follow their target out of New York City and into New Jersey, I guess. Or I guess it's Queens or something. Like, they leave Manhattan. And it just takes forever. And there's just so much dialogue of Gerard telling Biggs to, like, move his car around. Like, there's, like, five different examples of Gerard telling Biggs to move the car. It's just like, what the fuck, man? Like... The procedural dialogue is real. It doesn't have the joy of Gerard leading the team when they confront Richard Kimball in the aqueduct or viaduct or whatever the fuck it is. Like, that is the same type of scene. But that one had way more humor, way more different things to talk about. And this one was just, like, dull in comparison. Like, the energy was not present and it's just the same thing that glenn has brought up and i think scott you probably brought it up too but like you cannot save the lazy writing it's just there making everything worse lazy is an excellent way to describe a lot of what i've been struggling to come up with words for their reliance on cheap one-liners and all that kind of stuff all that and even acting highlights like some of the bits around newman's death get swept up in the lazy, lazy conspiracy plot. Because that's just part of Robert Downey Jr.'s character's revelation that he's a double agent, secret agent, whatever the hell. 
that he's setting up Wesley Snipes, or he's with the people setting up Wesley Snipes, and he's murdering everyone and blaming it on Wesley Snipes. And he apparently has the behind-the-scenes power to make all these orders and have all these people reporting to him. And he's a baby. Like, how is he the source of this? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. They don't bother establishing it, and they don't explain it other than just, like, him standing there being like, ha-ha, it was me. Like, it's literally that unsubtle. It's just not there. And again, it's lazy writing. You mean to tell me that the new guy, who is a jerk to everyone, whom Gerard doesn't like for the entire length of the movie, he's a traitor? Yeah, I guess he didn't want to do a redemption arc, I guess, on that guy, or have Gerard, like, soften up to him and, like, feel fatherly toward him like he clearly did toward Newman. Like, I guess they didn't want to do that, so instead they did this weird shit. And they made it a, a shocker, right? Like, there's no hint to it. It's a pivot which is a really hard thing to sell. And I think RDJ tried to sell it to us. Like there's some semi-decent acting at the beginning of the reveal, but by the time he does a smiley whiplash moment, it's just, it's fucked up. But they tried, man. It just reminds me again of what happens when you make a mystery story without deciding what the mystery is. Because like they've decided that the mystery for us is what the fuck is going on. And that's inadequate. Like your mystery can't be what the fuck is going on. There has to be something more substantial. And like the fugitive gives it to us in the first four minutes, which is who killed Richard's wife and why that's the mystery. And in this one, in the beginning, there's why did those guys die in the garage? But also who the fuck were they? You can't see it. You don't know who they were. Like, who are those people and why do we care? Whereas in the fugitive, it's Richard's wife. So we have a context immediately. That context isn't even placed particularly near the beginning of the movie, because you have the whole opening sequence where we're re-establishing Gerard, we're re-establishing the whole Marshalls group, and then the whole sequence with the completely random car accident that injures Wesley Snipes' character, and then the whole confrontation between him and the local cops, and then the whole prison airplane sequence And then we start to get into all of that conspiracy stuff. Yeah, it's just not ordered right. Like I was saying at the very beginning, there's like some draft war between directions that they were thinking of going in. And also brief shout out to he was injured in the car accident and then he literally peels off his cast and throws it away and that's it. Like what the, why? (laughs) Oh, well, he conveniently tells his girlfriend, well, I have a metal plate. I don't really need a cast. Like, I guess they did it to give the girlfriend a reason to pay the bill in the hospital so that they could find her. But they also were like, she paid the bill in cash, which is people pay the bills in cash so that their name isn't on it. Like, what the fuck? Like, they had like eight ideas. Also, why is Starbucks product placed in this fucking movie? <laughs> like, I bet it was kind of novel at the time because it was before Starbucks was so omnipresent. But I actually laughed because I saw, because the girlfriend works at Starbucks. Sorry, audience. That's why I'm bringing it up. But I saw that she's in a coffee shop and there's like a little green logo. And I'm like, oh, ha, it's fake Starbucks. But it was real Starbucks. (laughs) Struck me as funny. I'm like, that's how you're going to ground it in reality is you're going to feature Starbucks. Okay. Well, it's also kind of late 90s as well. Wasn't that the rise of a Starbucks on every corner around that time? I suppose. I don't know. Feels like it was slightly before that, but you might be right. How very 90s is this movie? What is the most 90s element of this movie? I'll go first. The tracksuit that Joey Pants gets Tommy Lee Jones. Oof, that's a woof for me. I'll counter with the oversized suit that Wesley Snipes wears in the cemetery scene. Ooh, good. Keen eye. I did notice how ill-fitting that fucking suit is. It's bad. I was going to give a shout-out to the sun and yellow-orange tone of Joey Pants' hair. <laughs> it is not okay <laughs> but it definitely definitely reminds me of uh crimes of the late 90s in terms of men's fashion if this movie was made in the early 2000s rather than the late 90s would he have frosted tips oh maybe and he's too old for them so it would be even harder to watch oh my god he's too old to suddenly go bleach blondes just because we're in the sequel too yeah I don't know. I guess they were trying to give us some New Jersey for pants, but that makes no sense because the team is based in Chicago. Like, they go back and forth between Chicago and New York for no reason. I mean, not no reason, but like... Well, we have to get to the UN. 
I guess, but like that also means that all of this shit is out of Gerard's jurisdiction. Because that's how the marshal's office works. Like it's just it's called U.S. Marshals. Did you want to maybe read the Wikipedia page about how that agency works? But it's out there throwing shit around. It's like a fan fiction of the fugitive, <laughs> but it's kind of a mess. No shade of fan fiction, which I love, but like it's not researched, and it really could have been because they had the budget. Oh, and while we're talking about visual crimes, anti shout out to the hairpiece they made Wesley Snipes wear along with his oversized suit. Fake stash as well, but that wasn't as visually <laughs> upsetting as the hairpiece. They made him wear <laughs> this straight ironed, like, chin length bob. Like, it just looks so fucking conspicuous. And he's trying to hide. So, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> see, I said to myself at the beginning of this movie that I guess we won't get a dramatic haircut and hair dyeing scene as Wesley Snipes tries to hide. But then here we go, Wesley Snipes did change his hair in order to try to hide. They hit that station of the fugitive. They did. Well, if there was going to be a dramatic hair dyeing scene, maybe it should have been Joey Pants. <laughs> also awesome. <laughs> it would have been heinous, but also awesome. Let's actually talk about some of the more positive elements. I don't know if either of you are going to think as highly of this as I do. But this is a Stuart Baird film. Stuart Baird directed three movies after and before returning to a rather distinguished career as a film editor, particularly for action films. He edited the first two Lethal Weapons, Die Hard 2, Demolition Man, very, you know, finely paced films. And I think a real strength of this movie is the action sequences. We were just talking about Wesley Snipes' wig and hilarious stash for the cemetery sequence, and I think that setting that shootout between Wesley Snipes and the Marshall team and the cringy and stereotypical Chinese villain in the cemetery like that was very innovative. They did some really interesting things there with people ducking behind gravestones and running through the mausoleum and around the whole environment of the cemetery. It's an enclosed space. There are only so many gates. It's a very fresh, I think, place to set an action scene, and I think they really made the most of that. And even a couple of the other action set pieces, the crane fight at the end of the film where they're suddenly lifted up in the air and they're flying around on the crane, I thought that was interesting. Some of the action scenes I thought were visually interesting and in a better written and better plotted movie would be really quite exciting. The action scenes are pretty good, except when they do the gratuitous slow-mo for the climactic bits. Yes, yes. I should acknowledge that about the cemetery sequence. The car crash during that cemetery scene where they suddenly go slow-mo is indeed very bad. Yeah, it shows the trends of the time, I think, a little bit. Like, it's in an age, that particular choice to do that. But I do notice that the film's overall pacing problems are at their minimum during the action beats, which are well-paced and well-edited. Like, you can clearly see what's going on, and there is some creativity there and some good physicality for the actors. Like, I recall particularly in the cemetery scene that Wesley Snipes has to vault over a chain-link fence and then, like, get down a hill and cross that train track, and we see Gerard doing that a few moments later. And it's just interesting, like, the actor's individual facility for that work and, like, how it looks. It was an interesting sort of grounding moment. It was like, I, too, could try to vault over a chain-link fence and make it down the sill without falling. Like, it gave it an immediacy that I appreciated. Well, I'm sure I could try. <laughs> I'm sure I couldn't. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> sure I could run up to the fence and start crying because I'm fucked. <laughs> well, I mean, Scott, you're tall enough. You could go up to a chain-link fence and just kind of try to tip over. I think I'd have a better shot at running headlong into a chain-link fence and trying to just knock the thing over. How far down are those posts sunk into the ground? <laughs> I did want to give a shout-out to Latanya Richardson, who played Marshall Cooper in this one. There was a black woman on Gerard's team, and they changed her. They made up a new character rather than did a recast. Um, they gave her a lot more lines than they gave the other character in The Fugitive, and I think she did well bouncing off the boys and making herself part of the team. So we were talking about positive stuff. That's a positive for me. 
Sure. Yeah, she slotted right in. Mm-hmm. Are there any other positives here? Or is this the shortest segment of the day? I wish the score was better. There were some callbacks to some of the instrumentation and shit from The Fugitive, but there's no hook that I remember the way that I remember the Fugitive hooks. But, like, shout out to English Horn. It's a nice choice. I'm going to be somewhat of a defender of the score as well. Scott, do you want to get your haterade on first? Well, this score is like a lot of Jerry Goldsmith scores from this era. There are several points where there's like 20 or 30 seconds of pretty good stuff, but there is not a single point anywhere in the score where there's two or three minutes of good stuff. Yeah, that's fair. Much like the actors are trying to make the most of what they can with a severely underwritten film, Jerry Goldsmith is doing what he did innumerable times for several decades of his career, which is trying to uplift and trying to support a movie that, if you have a high estimation of his talents, may not be particularly worthy of his talents. And I think he does a pretty good job here. I think one of the reasons why I'm so positively disposed to the action sequences, in addition to some of the interesting settings that I just mentioned, was the score for several of those sequences is very propulsive. It does share some elements, Elena, like you were saying, with James Newton Howard's score for The Fugitive. I think that's because there were some elements in the action scenes, in particular in The Fugitive, where there was a distinct influence from Goldsmith. The sort of mixed-meter writing that is a common enough device, but it's really, really Goldsmith's signature in the last several decades of his career, when he did a great many action films, that mixed-meter writing that kind of keeps things off-kilter and tries to keep you a little unbalanced during the action scenes so that they don't get boring, so that you stay invested. I think that is a device that was also used in The Fugitive, but that also is a ubiquitous element of all of Goldsmith's late career action films and action sequences. Mm -hmm. But it does have a melodic through line. It does have what I think is a fairly strong main theme and a secondary theme which I really wish had been developed more, but really isn't. This isn't a score that, before we decided to discuss this movie, I listened to many times. So when I did, what mostly stood out to me was that the main theme is a longer and more developed form of an action fanfare that he used in several of his, again, late career action films, most notably in my mind, Star Trek Insurrection because obviously I've listened to that much more than many of his other late career action films. But I did look it up while I was listening, and this was before Insurrection. So it actually started as its own main theme for a full score here. And then in Insurrection and a couple other of his action films going forward, there was a section of it that was kind of excerpted and used as more of a fanfare independently. But knowing those later uses very well, it was interesting to me to hear it more fleshed out and more varied, with more key changes, with more varied instrumentation and different moods at various points. I'm used to it as just an action fanfare. There, It's in more sensitive settings. It appears in a very triumphant arrangement at the end of the movie when Wesley Snipes is exonerated. There's a lot of variation to something that, not knowing the score very well before, I hadn't heard that many variants of, and that I thought was very interesting. In addition to the ways that it tries like hell to keep the action sequences exciting and to create some pathos somewhere, please God. You're hearing a lot of stuff that I didn't. The main theme to this film, in about 75-80% to 80 of the time it's used, it's a six-note fanfare. And I'd say about maybe another 20% of the time, it gets like a second round to lengthen it out to like maybe 10 seconds of like a repeated fanfare. And then I think like twice over the course of the score, it got repeated again to lengthen it to like a full 20 or 30 second bit. It's centered on a shorter motif, which is what was durable in his later scores, but 
I don't think it just repeats. It varies. Like I say, there are chord changes. There are instrumentation changes. So I think it does actually become a full theme in its own here. Well, I don't mean it repeats verbatim. I just mean that, you know, its main usage for like 80% of the time is like a five-second fanfare. And then like the other 20%, it's a 10-second fanfare. And like twice or so it gets extended again into something that's as long as 20 or 25 seconds. I mean, like you say, I may just be hearing things that you're not, and I'm more positively disposed to this stuff anyway, I suppose. I mean, you're allowed to like it more than I do. Oh, I still do. It's okay. I'll just cut that part out of the show so it sounds like we're in agreement. Okay. I mean, I shouldn't have said that. You can just cut out everything I said and go to you saying it's, you know. This score sucks. Okay. (laughs) I am the all-powerful editor. Hey, this is the trust we put in you. Can we talk about how one way this does carry on the tradition of the first movie is that all of the crashes are entirely fucking ridiculous? (laughs) Still really fun, though. Fun to an extent, but, like, right up there with the train chasing Richard Kimball through the woods. (laughs) I think we have to put the plane, that emergency lands, and then the wing tears off and explodes because it hit a telephone pole. And then, like, they do this emergency landing on the road. Like, the guy's got a map, says we can't get to the airport, but there's a road we can land on. And then the road unexpectedly turns 90 degrees, like that part wasn't on the map. And the pilot seems to be surprised that a road has telephone poles next to it. And also it was weird that they like did it internally, because like, and I'm not a pilot, but in other films that feature planes in distress, they speak with air traffic control. They don't like tell the co-pilot to look at an atlas and figure out where the fuck to land. That is not how that works. <laughs> like, And it loses a wing and it fucking rolls down the culvert and now it's filling with water upside down. Like, it's an example of what Glenn was saying about like indiscriminately raising stakes because that train crash in the fugitive is just on the line of believability. Like it's pushing it right to the edge and then leaves it there. But this one is just like, ha look at all this shit. And it's just too much. I did going into watching this film yesterday. I did have no awareness that there was a plane crash at the beginning. Like you say, raising the stakes from the train crash. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, between these movies, we have planes, trains, and automobiles. Oh my god. Get out, Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, this is the last episode of the podcast. Just find us on Twitch. (laughs) So when they were getting on the plane, I had the thought, are we seriously going to do a plane crash just to do something more extreme? And yeah, we did a plane crash. We fully opened up the plane at altitude and did the whole damn thing. The whole shit. I just missed Nick Cage. That's all I needed. It's not just a plane crash. They have to blow a hole in the side of the plane in midair, land on the road, the wing tears off and explodes. Then they go over the cliff, roll down the hill, and land in the river upside down. Yeah, what did they call it? The zip gun. I don't think the zip gun would have blown a hole in the side of the fucking plane. That held no water at all. I mean, I could see it breaking the window, maybe, but, like, would that really result in, like, a four-foot-wide hole being blown in the side of the plane? (laughs) I mean, I'm no aeronautics engineer, but I really hope not. But even apart from the, like, main plane crash that leads to the fugitive escaping, also, when Wesley Snipes crashes the tow truck in the beginning, when he plows through the construction barrier and then keeps going through the entire construction zone and eventually rolls over, like... That does go on and on. He could press the brake at some point during that sequence. Maybe that would make it not as bad a crash. I was kind of wondering about the brakes, too. Final thoughts, my loves? Well... I'm very glad to have the opportunity to talk about this movie with you, because otherwise, watching it I don't think is a very productive use of one's time. 
Yeah, I was right to avoid it for 23 years. I knew it wasn't going to be good, and it wasn't. I didn't want it threatening my deep, long-term relationship with the fugitive. (laughs) Oh my god, I didn't even think of that. I hope that doesn't taint anything for you. I hope it doesn't taint Gerard or even Joey Pants. It does not. I can cheerfully discard it. Yeah, but aren't you going to be a little sad every time you see Newman now? Maybe. I don't know. That's a good point. We'll have to see. I have to do my annual, well, my annual Fugitive rewatches in the month of March to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, but I might make another one. <laughs> Literally true. I'm that baddie about it. I feel like if they had had a St. Patrick's Day sequence in this movie, as compared to the first movie, it would have been so, so bad because it would have been approached with the same like lazy stereotypes as the rest of the movie. It would have been approached with the same lazy stereotypes as the country folk who just spit randomly. <laughs> that was so fucking hokey. Why, though? It was just, ugh. And I was telling Glenn, like, that characterization about Gerard having Bears tickets. No, he doesn't. He's not from Illinois, and you can hear it. Like, it just lazy, that it doesn't belong. So many weird choices distracted me. Like, it's the opposite of engrossing. So that's the thing about The Fugitive. The Fugitive is super engrossing. Yes. Like, you are, and it grabs you, and it holds on to you, and then it spits you out at the end. And this one is just like, what about this false note? Are you still watching? And it's just like, come on, fuck you. Like, <laughs> I think that'll do it for our discussion of the movie film for theaters, U.S. Marshals. Alana, thank you so much for being with us. I hope to have you back soon. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you, boys. And listeners, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at NontoxicFanboys on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at NontoxicFanboys at gmail.com or visit our website at NontoxicFanboys.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Details are in the episode description. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time. needs me. Don't think I won't fire your ass. Yeah, fugitive rules, U.S. Marshals rules.